0: Self-care is a big buzzword these days, and that's a good thing. But how do we make it accessible to more than just the privileged few? And how does body literacy play into the self-care equation? Hello, yoga teacher. Today's podcast guest, Tia Wallace, helps me tackle these questions and a whole lot more. Tia is a yoga teacher of eight years and also an orthopedic and pelvic health physical therapist in Oakland, California, which is the Bay Area. She's also a woman's health coach and the host of the Masterful Art of Self-Care podcast. In this conversation, Tia shares her own story that journeys from a rigid and rigorous style of yoga into one that celebrates critical thinking, and then all the way to PT school and motherhood. Tia found her passion advocating for self-care, and if you're new to the concept, Tia frames it in a way that's easy to understand and very, very relatable. If you're already a self-care advocate yourself, I think you'll love some of the nuance that Tia introduces into the conversation. With that said, let's jump right in and hear from Tia in her own words.
1: Tia, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Hi, Vino. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. I would love to start with a little bit about your background, how you found yoga, became a yoga teacher, and then where you went from there, how things evolved from there.
1: Okay, yeah, um, absolutely. So I started off um, finding yoga back when I was in college. Um, So I had completed all of my requirements for college and during that time I was also uh, taking some movement classes during like the last two years and during my senior year they offered yoga um so you know around that time staying madonna they were doing yoga and you know people were talking about it a lot more and about you know a lot of the benefits and i wanted to give it a try and even though i had taken you know i took ballet took modern dance a lot of other like tai chi even you know took a lot of other modern um you know type of dance classes. Um, I found yoga was just very different, and I felt it just really it was just a really good complement to the things that I was able to do. So obviously the flexibility part was great because I was pretty flexible. Um but I also love the strength component. I love the meditation component to it because I felt like you can't really get that in any other type of movement practice and it just allowed especially for me at that age like 2021 20, to really be able to sink inward and a lot of self-reflection inner reflection which I don't think I really had ever had before you know coming from like a catholic background you know, it was more about like following rules and, you know, not really about listening to your body or like kind of getting a sense of yourself and who you are. And I felt that was really the first, you know, revelation to that, you know, to myself. And I, you know, when I was in college, I also did ROTC. So for those who don't know, it's Reserve Officer Training Corps. So I graduated from college and I got commissioned as a US Naval officer. Um, did my first uh, duty? Had my first duty station in Japan. So my yoga practice was just kind of on and off. I was there for about two years, and then when I finally moved to San Diego um, for my second second duty station, then I found a really great yoga studio in San Diego and found an awesome teacher, and then started to kind of go into Ashtanga Vinyasa. And then that was my—I would say that was my practice, you know, moving forward. Um, so I studied there for probably about two years. And then, you know, I even asked the teacher, like, do, do you think that I'm good enough to, like, even teach, you know, as a yoga teacher? And, um, you know, she said, yeah, uh, just because I had been really committed to my practice. So then I moved up to the Bay Area um, after about two or three years that I was there, you know, found a job. But I moved into Alameda, Oakland area. And for me, like, the Bay Area was just so vastly different than, anywhere else I'd ever been, like even more so than San Diego, just, you know, I felt, um, you know, the culture was different. I felt that I ended up becoming vegetarian when I I was there, learned about, you know, just urban farming and composting and, you know, the yoga community was so vibrant there. And so I found a really great yoga studio in San Francisco, um, ended up doing a teacher training there again in Ashtanga Vinyasa. And that's what I ended up teaching, you know, so I ended up teaching around um, the East Bay uh, for, I guess, like eight, nine years. So for quite Quite a long time. And during that time, you know, I think like for most yoga teachers, and you're just like so excited, and you just want to learn everything. So I took, you know, prenatal um, teacher training, you know, uh, learn how to also teach kids, did a lot of stuff with um, Judith Hanson uh Relax and Renew, and was really into a lot of the restorative, you know, um, part of the practice, just because I felt like Ashtanga Vinyasa, it's like very type A, and it's like, go, 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 and push yourself harder. Um, and I was realizing, Like, yeah, that's great. But also I knew that I also needed to be able to have those times for just rest and restoration. And I wasn't really giving myself that because I would say, um, especially after I did my teacher training, I was practicing for, um, gosh, like maybe three to four days a week. And like, that's like, you know, um, for those who know Ashtanga, it was like, you know, the A series. And I was like pushing myself really hard because I wanted to get to the B series and I wanted to, you know, continue to progress um, in my practice. And it was really nice to do, you know, some of Judith Hanson Lassiter's work. And then I found Yin Yoga. And then I found Jill Miller. Um, And I actually had first met her when I lived in San Diego and she had offered one of her first um, workshops and, uh, it was like kind of centered around Nali Kriya and it was like abdominal churning. And, you know, it was my first time ever seeing anyone ever do Nali Kriya. And I was like, wow, that's so amazing. And, you know, then I followed her work and it was before she had developed, you know, Yoga Tune Up. And um, so I'd followed her work for a really long time. And then, um, when she started doing Yoga Tune Up and she was starting to offer teacher trainings, I went to one of, I was one of the first, you know, um, who did her level one teacher training down in LA and, I fell in love with the concept of yoga tune-up where it's really about, you know, taking your yoga practice and being able to turn it upside down and, you know, in lots of, and really thinking outside of the box. And I think I needed that because I was so much in the Ashtanga Vinyasa world for so long and my practice was getting boring and I was starting to get bored. And when I was teaching, I was getting bored. And um, even my practice, like it wasn't as exciting anymore. And with like her concept and, you know, her way of teaching and teaching other teachers of like really, um, you know, context is key and being able to think outside the box. Um, with regards to how you're teaching, I thought was huge for me. And it it was just a very big awakening. And so that was a big part of it. And then also she does a lot of self-massage using um, self-massage therapy tools or yoga balls. And so also for me, that was like huge. It's like, wow, I can get a self-massage, you know, whenever I want to, I don't have to you know shell out a lot of money for a massage but then also i felt like i had so much autonomy like i had so much control over the pressure that i wanted where i wanted to focus you know my intention whereas i feel like you know for those who do get massages a 60 minute massage you know, you can kind of walk away from it feeling like unsatisfied if it's not, you know, really good or if you want the massage therapist to work, you know, in a certain area for a longer period of time. Then it was through Jill Miller that then I just kind of got into the world of a lot of corrective exercise and um, rehabilitative yoga as well too. And, you know, ended up finding Katie Bowman, um, ended up learning about physical therapy, um, around that time. And people always ask like, how did you get into physical therapy? And I always, that. For me, um, you know, I was in a certain point in my life. Um, I was teaching for a while. I had just gotten married and I wasn't sure what was next for me. You know, I knew like the um, teaching yoga is very, very competitive in the Bay Area. It's hard to, you know, get good teaching gigs and I didn't know. I knew that I didn't want to teach yoga forever. Like the pay sucked. (laughs) I was traveling a lot um, And I knew that I wanted something more and around that time I had at least like two instances I had um, a student come up to me and ask if I was a physical therapist or you know, just something to that You know effect and I said no like a lot of what I'm doing is maybe reflective of physical therapy exercises I never considered physical therapy. I didn't really know much about it. You know, um, maybe just a little bit that I'd heard, you know, just from having taken trainings with Jill Miller. So when I had, you know, two people ask me about physical therapy, I looked into it, um, you know, just to see, okay, like, are there schools nearby? What does it consist of? And when I saw, like, okay, it might take me about, like, two years to do some prerequisites, then I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do it. Because um, at that time also, like, they were just starting to make it a doctorate program. So before it was just a master's, I ended up becoming a doctorate. And so for me, it was like, yeah, because like, I want to be able to, you know, teach movements, you know, whether it's yoga, whether it's just exercise, whether it's just strength training, but I want to be able to do it in any setting, not just in a yoga studio. Like if I need to go to a hospital, you know, go to a person's home, like I can be able to do that. And and unfortunately, I felt like the degree, it helped to solidify my competence and what I knew. So that was also a big um, motivation for me. I had signed up to take my first set of prerequisites um, in 2012 found out I was pregnant and had gone through my pregnancy, halfway through, I was in Mexico with my husband, um, just on a vacation. And I was um, about 20 weeks and started having some complications. And like for for me, it's like just a very defining moment because I ended up miscarrying um, my son at 20 weeks um, after I got back from Mexico. And the, you know, it happened on a Thursday when I was at the hospital, um, and then had the weekend, you know, just to kind of grieve and mourn at home. And then the following week on Monday was my first um, physiology class. And um, I remember missing that first class because I think it was like a Monday Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Thursday type of class. So I didn't go on that Monday, but I remember the next day, you know, like I knew the next session was going to be happening. And I remember just like being in bed and thinking to myself, like I can either move forward and just kind of put my focus, my energy into this next step, this next phase, or I can, you know, stay here in bed and just be really sad and depressed. Um, So I feel like that was, that was my motivation. My driving force was to like get out of bed and just start taking those classes. And that was, I felt like what really pushed me. Um, And I had something to focus on. um, Because, you know, it was a really tough year for me, um, you know, after having miscarried and then um, did my two years of prerequisites. Um, I ended up finding I was pregnant again when I found out that I got into PT school. So uh, then I had the decision to, and I, you know, just for anyone who has had a miscarriage and then tried to get pregnant again, there's just a huge amount of anxiety of like, will this one, you know, will it be a viable pregnancy? Will he or she survive? And so, you know, there was a lot of anxiety throughout my entire pregnancy. So it was really hard to also then put a lot of focus and attention on PT school. But, you know, I went through the interview, did the interview, got accepted into the school, um, had my daughter and had to make the choice of like, okay, well, <laughs> what do I do next? And my husband, you know, even though I, you know, didn't like him for it at the time because I wanted to move forward you know, I made the decision to defer for a year, so I could be with my daughter for that first year. And I think it was the best decision that I ever made because I feel like I have such a strong bond and connection with her. Um, but I think it was important for me to have that because then after a year of being with her, then I was ready, like, okay, I'm ready to you know, get into something else other than just being a stay-at-home mom because it was, it was great, but also like, I felt like I wasn't using my brain. So uh, the school, so I'm up in the Bay Area, Northern California. The school that I got accepted into was down in Southern California. So down by San Diego. So they offered a really great flex program. So especially for um, those who wanted to keep their jobs or, you know, have families. So I had to travel down there two weekends out of the month. And I did that for four years. And for the first year, I brought my daughter with me. So, and we were still nursing um so I was nursing, pumping in the bathroom in between um classes and you know we stayed at Airbnbs and then eventually stayed with a friend graduated last year started working in December at a hospital based outpatient um PT clinic uh worked there for about 4 months and then covid happened so then I was on furlough <laughs> for about two months, and now I'm back at the clinic, but like under really modified schedule now. So it's been a very, very tumultuous, you know, say like five, six years, you know, with school and everything that's going on right now. But um, I've learned so much, you know, just along that journey and um, throughout the whole entire process. So yeah, that was my <laughs> journey from <laughs> from going from yoga, discovering yoga, being a yoga teacher, all the way to um, being a, becoming a PT.
0: What an what an incredible story you have. And, <laughs> and I feel like there's so many opportunities in there, so many lessons in there for yoga teachers. You know, what I think would be really helpful because this term self-care, it gets thrown around a lot, mm-hmm. but I don't think we always are talking about the same thing. So do you have a definition for self-care that you use?
1: For me, I would define it as something that is you know, and I, I, I want to probably preface it to say like intuitive self-care, just because I've, as I I've spent some time just really on my own journey of self-care, self-care is going to be very specific, you know, to each individual person, um, that it's something that can ebb and flow, that it's always constantly evolving as well. And it's something that should be both nourishing, you know, as well as revealing for that person. So I see self-care is not always like a feel good thing, not all the time. Like I think that there are moments where self-care is also going to be really, it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be revealing some really dark sides that need to be addressed. And then that it's always constantly evolving. You know, it's never going to be the same. Like, whether during different stages of your life um, or also even just day to day, I think, especially, you know, for those of us, you know, with kids, it's constantly evolving day to day. Like your, your kid can have a really great day one day and then the next day she wakes up and the wrong side of the bed. And then the things that you need to do for yourself, you know, just so that you can stay self-regulated so you can help regulate them are going to be very different. So I, I think that that's, like, the biggest thing that I've learned is, like, it needs to constantly shift because it's not going to be the same. And the days where, like, yeah, I want to just maybe roll out on the balls and, like, just feel really good, you know, then that's what I need. And then there's other days where I might need to cry you know, and that's what I need to do or other days where I need to vent and I need to go and, you know, talk to my sister and just kind of let things off, you know, get things off my chest. And that's my form of self-care. So it just it definitely it varies. And I think it's important for a lot of us to kind of be aware of that, because I think mainstream media, you know, social media, Instagram, they have a picture perfect of, you know, what self-care is should look like you know or what celebrities do for self-care but that's not gonna fit into a lifestyle of someone who you know might be teaching yoga and and might be you know teaching at lots of different studios well i know they're not teaching at studios right now but you know a stay-at-home mom like that's self-care is not going to be the same compared to you know a single person so i think to understand that it's gonna it's gonna change you know just wherever you are in your stage of life
0: I love what you said about self-care being intuitive, nourishing, and revealing. I think that's a really helpful definition of self-care. The one that I've kind of been working with, and I'd love to hear your take on it, because you said something about Mm self-regulating. And so for me, that's kind of what I've been working with in my definition of self-care, that it's about monitoring and regulating our own nervous systems. Which does imply that it's going to be constantly changing, right? That we have to be in relationship with this concept of self care. I also think it's really important to be considering accessibility when we talk about self care, because sometimes I think it feels like self care is something that's a privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about self care that is available to anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I feel like if, if self-care is a privilege, then those people who have that privilege, then they can access that. And that's great. They don't need, they don't need to really be educated about it. If it's a privilege, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Like yeah, the yeah. education, if we can, if we can educate people about self-care, the goal is to empower. The mm-hmm. goal is to help people access, find their own access, and maybe even just open them up to the possibility that self-care is for everyone?
1: Yeah. I mean, when I started off, so for those who don't know, like I have a podcast called The Masterful Art of Self-Care, and my... My, I guess, my mission or my vision of my podcast, you know, has changed and it's morphed over, like, I guess, the last two and a half years that I've had it. And the initial, you know, was that self care is available to anybody and everyone, and it shouldn't be dictated by, you know, how much it costs, you know, by price, um, and it should be accessible to anybody. And I'll, I'll just speak, you know, for myself that, you know, when I was really kind of delving into, like even just like the term self-care for me didn't really come into my mindset until after I had my daughter, even though I was doing self-care and I was doing yoga and all of these other things, you know, before her. And I thought that that was self-care, but like, to be honest, I don't think that it truly was because I would say in a way, I was really beating myself up, you know, with a practice that really wasn't, Meant for me, like the Ashtanga Vinyasa practice wasn't meant like for my personality. Yeah, like I'm really great at it, but that wasn't what was meant for me. And um, you know, I really kind of started to delve into self care, you know, during postpartum when I was by myself with my daughter, you know, I wasn't working. I didn't have, I didn't have a degree. Well, other than like a bachelor's degree, but I was just teaching yoga. That's what I was doing. And so my income source, you know, had dropped. I had my husband, you know, but, you know, he wasn't gonna like pay to you know, have me go do a massage or pay for like, um, you know, a postpartum doula so that way I can, you know, have some free time to go and do some stuff. Like that was really on me if those were things that I wanted to go into. And then even just the accessibility of being able to leave the home, you know, with a little one, you know, it was scary. You know, it's scary for any first time mom. Um, but I feel like those are big, two big stumbling blocks. And then also just not having a good support system or a network of other moms or just even my family. Like I'm from New York. So my sisters, my mom and dad, they're all in New York. I'm out in California and I'm with a, a little one and I didn't have a good support system, unfortunately. And, and then like, as I reflect on that, like those, like that's where self-care really is. is like having that support system, like having mm-hmm. an, a community of whether it's other moms, whether it's family um, to really help you to help support you. And then even just also knowing that self-care can be something that doesn't have to cost money, that it can be simple, simple acts of self-care. you know it can be just a, can be good, maybe even better than something that I'm spending like $100 dollars at a spa, for example. And I didn't realize that I didn't know that at the time. I thought that I needed to have money in order to access all of these different services. Um so when I created the podcast, like for me, like that was what I wanted to spread that message is like it's accessible to anybody and it can be simple things that you're doing every day, you know, that can be your self-care and you don't need to be spending a lot of money. You don't need a lot of time also. And I think most people think like they feel like I have to then schedule in time, especially if they're already so busy, like, oh I gotta, you know, make time to do my yoga class or to go get a massage. And it's like if you have five minutes, like in between you're transitioning from one thing to another, then yeah, if you have the yoga tuna balls, that can be something. It could be like five minutes to go and do like a quick breathing practice. Doesn't have to like have like a big setup. And so, yeah, I'm a huge proponent for just accessibility and, um, and teaching people tools that it can be something, you know, just so simple. It doesn't have to be you know, take a lot of time. You don't need a lot of space, you know, to do it. Cause like, for me, that was, that was what I discovered. Like when my daughter was sleeping or when she was playing on the ground, okay, that's my time to do some stretching or to, you know, do some self massage. Um, You know, even with, you know, there were times where like I needed to be creative, you know, and that was what, you know, prompted, like I actually started with a blog and then I didn't follow through with the blog and then in doing the podcast, but it was like those moments, like of even just like having creative time as well, like that's self-care too. Like to be able to like use the access, your other side of your brain as well, um, was when I was nursing her, you know, and then she fell asleep and she was in my lap Then I'd have my laptop and I would like, you know, write notes or I would just write or, or something like that. So, and, and and I also don't want it to seem as if like, oh, well, if I could do it, then you can do it. And you can always find the time because I don't think that's true either. And I don't believe in um, trying to pack your schedule or trying to fit it in because there's also days where it's like, I didn't get to do my journal entry today. And that's okay. And I'm okay with that, you know, and not beating yourself up about it and having a lot of regrets. And I think that all, that's also a form of self-care too. Um Realizing that it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, Because I think that there might be this, again, just from what we see, that there um, is this tendency to feel like your self-care practice has to be perfect and it needs to look a certain way. And again, like it's very individualistic. So if it's like five minutes that you can give to yourself, you know, um, at the beginning of your day, And if that's good enough and that like sets you up for like going to work or taking care of your kids and at least you're able to self-regulate yourself like just from that five-minute practice, that's better than nothing, you know. And then at least just acknowledging that, you know, you're giving yourself this time or acknowledging I'm giving myself five minutes, you know, today, right now, and that's good enough for today. And being okay with that, um, but yeah, and I like you're just taking it back to um, when you were talking about self regulation. I think that your self care practice should be able to help regulate you as well too. It shouldn't just be for fluff, you know, just doing it just to do it because it's the latest fad or it's the latest trend. I mean, it's and that's where I feel like the intuition comes in. It's really getting that sense like, what does my body need at this moment? Because maybe it isn't a sixty minute hard practice maybe it's just being in shavasana you know for example and that's really hard especially for those who are type a and they're like very used to like doing 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 and i'm still like that you know um my my movement practice has definitely shifted where it's not yoga all the time um you know but then also just i wake up in the morning and you know i have like a set schedule like okay this is what i'm going to do each day but also i have to assess like when i wake up like what's my energy level like you know especially depending on where I'm at in my cycle, if my body is saying like, no, you know, you need to just chill or just to rest or just to sit quietly or just maybe to move, but, you know, in a more gentler way, then I have to respect and honor that. Cause then when I don't do that, then I feel off, you know, and I, and I can sense that. And then like, I just feel bad (laughs) because, you know, my body, I didn't listen to my body. So.
0: Do you find that sometimes people, especially mothers have some sense of guilt around the idea of self-care, or they feel like their family obligations are so intense that to make time for self-care would be cheating their children or their family. Have you, have you seen that pattern?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've seen that pattern. I mean, definitely for myself and some of my other mom friends where then our energy and our focus is definitely, it's on the family, it's on the kids. It's making sure that they're taken care of and then we take care of ourselves last. And I noticed that, you know, within the first like six months, you know, as soon as like, I was like healthy enough and able to like get off the couch and start moving around and I was healed from my C-section, I was back to cooking, back to grocery shopping, back to cleaning the house, doing all the errands and taking care of my daughter. And there was really no time. It, and by the end of the day, I was just so wiped out. I was so tired. So like, you know, reading was like maybe the only thing that I was doing for myself, you know, at the end of the day. And then I was like out by like eight or nine o'clock. And then I was also nursing at night. So I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. So um, yeah, I would say like, I was definitely last. Um, I wasn't really considering what I needed. And I know that like around the six month mark, I was I was looking for something, you know, I was wanting actually to get back into teaching because I wanted an opportunity just for me to be in my body, like whether it's teaching others, but then it's a moment also for me to move as well too. And I was really seeking that out and I tried it for a couple of months and it didn't last just because it was, I had to bring my daughter with me, you know? And again, like I just didn't have that support system. I didn't have like, okay, well, if something that's going to fill my cup and fill me up was to be able to go and teach, but then I didn't have, you know, a very good support system for someone to help care for my daughter. Like I was, you know, it was here or there, but it wasn 't consistent, and then it 's hard for me to then be consistent with my teaching, so I ended up having to just like give that up after just like two or three months of teaching because it just wasn 't sustainable for me, yeah, I think that there are a lot of a lot of moms who um, definitely do beat themselves up you know and feel like they have to do this. Um, But then it's really hard to figure out how to do it. And I think community is the biggest thing that, you know, is like there's there's the term community care. And and I'm a huge advocate and I believe that in order for a mother to be able to access and have self-care, there needs to be community care. There needs to be that network, that, you know, support system um, in place. Cause then when that's available, then that mom can be able to take care of themselves and then they can go back into that community or whether that community is their family and be able to provide really great care for them. You know, but if the mom is so depleted because you know she's taking care of them she doesn't have time to take care for herself then it makes it really hard for that for her to continue to be replenished you know each time to continue to give 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 you know so I think it needs to work um both ways where she's she's getting the support so that she can take care of herself so then she can go back into the community and continue to give and I think it's very reciprocal it has to be reciprocal it can't just be you know just one way because I don't think that sustainable for the long term. There's
0: a little bit of a disconnect with a mom who feels that she doesn't have time for self-care because it would be taking away from her family. I think that the educational piece or the realization is that if we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to show up as well for other people. And so if our intent, if our ultimate goal is to show up for our family, then part of that has to be a commitment to showing up for ourselves first. One, yes, for sustainability, but two, as modeling for your kids. Mm -hmm. What do you want your kids to be like? How do you want them to take care of themselves? Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. No, that's huge. I mean, like, especially for my daughter, I mean, she's seen me you know, from being like a baby, you know, toddler of like being on the ground and moving. So whether it's I'm doing yoga, whether I'm stretching and for a little, you know, bit of time, you know, she would say like, oh, like I'm stretching, you know, like in her toddler voice. And when she was like two or three and for her to say, or like even meditating, you know, and she'll wake up in the morning. I might be still in my, my self-care routine, my morning you know, routine and I'll, I'll tell her, I'll let her know like, Oh, I still have to finish up, you know what I'm doing, or I need to do my meditation practice or I need to write in my journal so she knows like, this is, this is my time. Like, this is my time that I've carved out. And then she can sit quietly with me or she might move or grab her blanket and lay next to me while I continue to do what I'm doing. But then she sees that I am committing. I'm, I'm making that time for myself. Like, even though she's present and she's there instead of like, oh, okay, what do you need for breakfast? And like, just kind of get her going on her day. But like to see like, yeah, I'm, I'm making time for myself. And that, that time is very, very important to me. Cause I, yeah, I definitely want to model that for her. Cause it's, I think especially as females in our society, you know, we're, we're told to, I think, you know, just be doing, 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 and not really allowing ourselves just to be, and, you know, um, doing, doing, and achieving, and getting better, and get good grades, and do as much as you can, um, but never really just those quiet moments, those quiet times, and I think that's important for my daughter to realize that that's just as important as, like, doing, and achieving, and trying to accomplish all these stuff.
0: Absolutely. I think it's really quite a powerful message to send our children. hmm The other thing about your the other part of your definition that I really love is this emphasis on community support, because I think that there's a very parallel story when we're very focused on our family, where, yeah, we sometimes don't make time To make friends or make time for our friendships. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm very guilty of this. And I have this tendency to like really pour myself into my work and my family. And yeah, I love having my friends out there. But how often do I do I actually put them on my schedule? Because if they're not, you know, it's like, it's not scheduled, then it's not happening. Yeah and i think it's it's an it's a message i need to hear and i have to tell myself this over and over like you can't survive you're not an island you have to have community mm-hmm. you have to make time for that and make it a priority
1: yes yeah it's so important Um, it's hard I think it's hard just being a mom making mom friends I mean that's something I've you know realized it's hard making mom friends and because I feel like a lot of it it's then the focus is on the kid and if the kids are friends then you end up becoming friends with the mom but then if someone moves away or the kids don't like each other anymore they've just gotten older and you know they have differences then you end up kind of Losing touch and no longer friends with the mom, and I don't like that, you know. And I know that that's going to continue to be a pattern as my daughter gets older. And I end up meeting, you know, more of her friends and her friends' um, parents. There, I could say that there's at least one mom, you know, and my daughter is friends with, you know, her daughter. And yeah, I mean, I I can say I don't have the I don't have the perfect formula, but I know that it's something that I need to be better at. I know that it's so important because when I'm able to establish that and have that, I mean, my daughter just does so much better, you know, just knowing that she can go over to their house, you know, and hang out and play with them, you know, for a couple of hours. And then that gives me time or my husband time to be able to, you know, do the things that we need to go and do like around the house or take care of ourselves or run errands. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that it's not prioritized, you know, in this culture, it's, you know, very like nuclear families, but, um, I know that that wasn't the case like years, years and years and years ago.
0: Well, I think you've really pointed out something important for those of us who are parents is that there becomes more chemistry dynamics. You you know what I mean? Like, let's say the moms have to get along, the dads have to get along, and the children all have to get along. And now, of course, we've got families that are configured in different ways. So not all families have a mom and a dad. Some have two moms, but there are more relationships to to go to have to be comfortable, right? Yeah mm-hmm. So I do find that finding situations where all those relationships are are comfortable and nurturing and nourishing, that's kind of rare. It actually. is very rare. Yeah, it is very rare. And I'm thinking that part of part of an invitation for us as moms is to go out and find friends. Mm -hmm. that are not related to kids, right? (laughs) Yeah. Other friends too, (laughs) our own friends.
1: (laughs) Which is very true. And it's something that I've, you know, kind of put out into the universe, like for the last two years, like I want to find, I want to just find another friend who is not, doesn't have a kid, you know, just that we have the same interests, you know, and it's a struggle. It's really hard. And then, you know, then if you're also working, and schedules don't line up. And then, I mean, like my weekends, really my weekends are with my family. Whereas like that would be an opportunity to be able to like hang out and have brunch or something. I, I really can't do that. It's really hard. So, um, you know, maybe, and also I just don't try hard enough. <laughs> yeah, well because, too. you know, we Someone can invite
0: else. our friends to hang out with our family. Like it, there doesn't have to be another kid and another partner. True. Mm-hmm. To all, but, but there is that, transition phase, right? Like you can do that with a good friend, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: with somebody who you're just kind of trying to get to know.
1: Yeah. That's hard. hard. Yes. Very, very hard. I hope that
0: this conversation is inspiring listeners to expand their view of self-care a bit. And I want to highlight another thing you said. There's a lot of yoga teachers who are, have this idea of what self-care should look like and, and what it would look like for them to be succeeding at self-care. And let's Let's take that off the table. Self-care is not something to succeed at or fail at. Mm -hmm. It is a relationship. Yes. You and your body, you and your nervous system. And moment by moment, you can be in a deeper relationship or a less intimate relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and your nervous system.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I feel like then that's where the body literacy part, you know, comes in for me is, I mean, yes, you have to be in relationship with your body. You have to have a deep understanding of your body and what your body is telling you for you to then know like, okay, this is what my body needs at that time. And then I can then apply this self-care tool or that self-care to it, you know, but then if you don't have that self-awareness of what your body is needing at that moment, it can be really, really hard to, you know, figure out what it's needed, what is needed, and then you're just kind of you know doing what everybody else is doing, or what's the trendiest thing, um, and then where you don't feel fulfilled, you don't feel like okay. And, I, and again, like it's taking back to like what I said earlier, where I don't think that um, self-care has to always just be about pleasure. I think that there's going to be also those hard things too, that, you know, um, the hard stuff they have to do, which is also self-care as well. But I think then it's like realizing like, okay, I know this is going to be hard. I know this is going to suck, but I know that this is what, you know, my body needs or what my, my mind needs at this time um, in order for me to really thrive, you know, and move forward with whatever it is that you need to do next in your life. So
0: one of the concepts that has been really alive and powerful for me recently, like I've been talking about it a lot is this concept of clean pain versus dirty pain from Resma Menachem. Are you familiar? Have you read My Grandmother's Hands?
1: I haven't. It's on my my long queue of books to read. <laughs> so it's on
0: my Kindle. So this is just really kind of popping out at me when you talk about self-care doesn't always feel good. I was like, yeah. whoa, that's different from what the normal narrative is. Mm-hmm. And this is very related to this concept. So what Resma says about clean pain versus dirty pain is that clean pain is the pain that you feel when you're doing the right thing that's hard. Mm -hmm. And dirty pain is the pain that results from avoiding clean pain. Mm -hmm. So when you avoid doing the right thing that's hard, you suffer and often other people suffer in response. Yeah, And that's dirty pain. And that's what a lot of the trauma, the body-based trauma that we pass down and we project onto other people is coming from that dirty pain of avoiding Mm -hmm. doing what's right and painful.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: (laughs) Right? Like looking at ourselves honestly and being willing to learn about our history. Anything that you encounter in the moment where you have the choice to, the choice between following your values in a painful context, Mm -hmm. avoiding your values. The assumption is that this avoidance is going to avoid pain, but it doesn't. It usually causes more pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is kind of blowing my mind about self-care, not always being enjoyable. Yeah. Because then what it says is self-care is about healing,
1: right? Mm -hmm.
0: And about allowing the truth of the moment to flow through you, to encounter the moment as it is, mm-hmm. then in that way, by being willing to experience some discomfort and even that clean pain, you release or heal, or at least you don't compound whatever whatever's coming up, right? And that, obviously it's so... It's so vague. I'm speaking about it in vague terms because it's different for every person.
1: It is. No, I mean, like, I know you said it's like, it's pretty vague, but like, I mean, I think a very clear example, especially like as a physical therapist, that, you know, I'm working with patients, shoulder issue, shoulder injury, and they're going to have to, in order for their shoulder function to get better, they're going to have to do some of the hard stuff. And it's not going to feel good. It's going to really suck. You know, it might even, create even more pain than what they're feeling but that they have to in some ways especially if it's like you know post op you know like they have to unfortunately get through that pain if if they're looking to regain their full function you know whether it's in their knee or their shoulder And then there's so like, it sucks at that time, you know, and they have to endure that pain and it might last longer. And then there might not be like a palliative or like a band aid that you could put over it. You have to like, just kind of suffer through it. But then as they continue to work through that, you know, that hard stuff, it actually gets easier. Then it gets easier to move that shoulder or to regain that, you know, full flexion in their knee, you know, and then at the end of like, whether the six weeks, eight weeks that they've gone through the rehab then they're thankful, you know, of being pushed to their limit, you know, getting pushed into like where they had to do the hard stuff, you know, that they didn't want to do, but they, well, at least the therapist knew is like, this is good for you. Like you need to do this in order for you to get better, you know, or to get full function. I think it's the same thing with anything, you know, Um, like, you know, definitely with trauma, I mean, like where the healing comes in, it's not a matter of you know, reiterating or repeating that trauma, but it's also like, where's, um, it's like, where's the resonance, you know, around that? It's just something that I'm, you know, right now my mentor, Tammy Lynn Kent, um, she does a lot of holistic pelvic care. And so that's something she talks about is like, you know, with regards to the trauma, it can be very reactive, but then also where can you find, you know, the resonance or where can you find the blessing in order for you to then get to that healing, which I think is so important. Um And you definitely, I mean, I think with trauma, we don't want to then just kind of like take the knife and like stab it, you know, or dig in even deeper, you know, and then create even more trauma. But then I think it's important then like to do that, that work in order to learn from that trauma or figure out how to come out on the other side. And so that is doing the hard work. Otherwise, yeah, it's easy just to, it's very easy just to kind of like close your eyes, pretend it didn't happen or Pretend it isn't there and then just try to move on through life. But I don't think then you're really ever going to be your full self, you know, if you're just kind of putting the blinders on. So it requires you doing that deep revealing work Um, and it's going to be hard. It might even be re-traumatizing as well, too, but that's where you're going to be able to get to the other side. And I think, you know, whether it's like mentally, physically, emotionally, um, yeah, that's definitely it's needed
0: when we talk about intuition, doing the hard thing is generally not an intuitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there needs to be a, a balance to intuition with both having mentors and mirrors and people that we really look to, to bounce things off of, and then also wisdom and, you know, learning. And I think that also speaks to your, the conversation around body literacy is like there's so many benefits to learning about the body so that you can start to interpret the signals from your body, not always from this from that limbic place of what's the first reaction, right? Because the first reaction to pain is almost always you pull it pull your hand away, right? I mean, if you touch a hot stove, you pull your hand away before your 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 conscious mind has even registered that it's hot right yeah mhm we all want to avoid pain but but we're now learning well that's not always the healthy strategy in the long run maybe that brings some nuance to the word intuition yeah right because sometimes we think i i have people in my life and i've certainly in the past had people in my life who wanted to live solely by their intuition. And that felt like the most authentic way to live. But they weren't necessarily able to differentiate between a natural fear-based reaction that is not, has no basis in reality and mm-hmm. something that is truly not right for us.
1: When I think of intuition, you know, and for me, it's like, I, I, I'll i take a word and really you know, try to like being into it, you know, like intuition is like really being into it and really being, you know, fully invested, fully embedded in whatever that thing is. Um, and then also just deeply, you know, researching, you know, discovering. Most people I think are more, are very avoidant, you know, of wanting to deep that, do that deep discovery work. If
0: Anyone listening wants to find out more about you or wants to listen to your podcast, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram primarily and social media. So you can find me at Physio podcast is called The Masterful Art of Self-Care. So I also have a website, The Masterful Art of Self-Care, so you can find the podcast there um, or wherever it is that um, you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Well, I hope that everyone
0: listening will go find you. So thank you so much again for coming and sitting outside and letting the birds <laughs> <laughs> provide the, the background music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, mido for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: If you've been a listener for any length of time, then you know that I end every episode with a call to check in with your own self-care practices. What kind of structures, systems, and strategies help you to make self-care a priority and help you to keep it top of mind? Talking about it on the podcast is actually one of my strategies. Like Tia mentioned during our conversation, self-care is a moving target. Our lives are constantly changing and our self-care practices need to adapt along with the rest of our lives. I have definitely already gone through several several different phases this year, adapting to COVID and having my children home, the changing seasons, and then also just paying attention to my body. I'm also no stranger to the trap that Tia and I talked about during our conversation of feeling like I should be doing self-care a certain way. Like it's another way for me to measure up or not. And I know logically that that's a trap, but I just wanted to say that if you resonated with that piece of the conversation, that you're not alone. And this is just something that we have to recognize, pay attention to, and then do our best to move through So the big thing I want to invite you to notice is whether you use your self-care as one more way to measure your success, or can it be one of the few things in your life that you just exempt from that framework? What if our self-care could be a living relationship with our own inner wisdom and intuition that we seek to nurture without expectations? I know it's a tall order, in the culture that we live in. But I believe that if we keep supporting each other, we can grow into it. That's all for this week. Thank you for being a part of the conversation.